Good morning, everybody. Got a little church family uh, discussion to have here at the beginning. Want to extend some prayers to the Witzig family. Anna Witzig, she lost her father. There's a picture of Anna with her dad. She lost her dad this past Thursday, Daniel Umbaugh. And so Anna, and just been a journey. Daniel battled a lot of illness, multiple things, and Anna said he finally succumbed to a respiratory illness. And so we need to be praying for Rob and Anna. Witzig family have been a part of Eagle for a long, long time. So many of you would know them. And I uh, just want to let you know we're praying for you, Anna, and family. Services are going to be this Thursday evening for visitation, memorial service on Friday, and we're hosting it here. I wanted to read you a couple of things. I was texting with Anna about her dad, and uh, she said these things about her dad. Quote, the most joyful man you'd ever meet. Wow. Quote, he was literally Jesus to people. Quote, everyone felt loved and seen. What a legacy, right? Jesus to people, most joyful person, felt loved and seen in his presence. And yet when you talk to Anne and the family, his body was just deteriorating. It was a long, difficult journey outwardly, but inwardly, wow, just so renewed and such a joyful presence. And so it will be a gathering of celebration for the life and legacy of Daniel Umba this week. So Witzig family, our prayers are with you. Amen. Open up your Bibles, Luke chapter 14. Thanks to the Millers for reading us the teaching text for today. Last uh, week or a week or so ago, there was a few of us who went to New York City. We gathered with a couple of hundred other churches um, that kind of in the spirit, what brought us together was there was this sense among a couple of hundred churches um, there's probably four or 500 people in the gathering total, most of them pastors and leaders at some level in the local church. And we were brought together under this banner that a sense that God is calling His church to revival, renewal, and awakening with at its core this kind of heart of pr- travailing prayer. And so we were all together for three days in New York City, and it was a challenging time, uh, encouraging time, all the above. And uh, one of the, on Thursday evening when we arrived, we gathered in a prayer room, 57th and 7th in Manhattan. There's a prayer room. They have 19 prayer gatherings in that prayer room at 57th and 7th in Manhattan. So parentheses, lest you think Jesus is going to continue to build his kingdom, okay? It's going on. And so we found out when we got to town, we got in like Thursday afternoon, I looked up and said, hey, there's a prayer gathering at 7 o'clock. And so we went. And here's a little picture of what we encountered. Do we have the audio with it? Seven to eight p.m. on a Thursday, 57th Street in Manhattan. We just joined one of 19 of those kinds of gatherings going on. It was filled with worship, scripture, silence, and prayer for an hour. It was a beautiful time together. I think our team brought the age level up a good 15 to 20 years. Just saying. 
predominantly 20-somethings, maybe the older crowd would be in the 30s, which is another encouraging thing, right, to think the Lord's raising up a whole generation, passionate to seek Him. So around 8 o'clock, the gathering was dismissed, and we walked out the steps of the church down onto 57th Street. We took maybe 10 steps on the sidewalk, and we were confronted by a man, which if you've been in Manhattan, it's not unlike being, you know, people just walk up to you and say all kinds of things, right? So this gentleman just walks up to the four of us. We literally just walked out of the prayer gathering, 10 steps on the sidewalk. This gentleman walks up and asks us one of the most pornographic questions you could be asked. The kind of question that should never be repeated. And he kept walking past. And we were, once we got through kind of the shock and the being stunned and the contrast of the previous hour, okay? The previous hour, worship, prayer, silence, Scripture, calling out to God, seeking God, ten steps later, boom. You see, church, there is a cost to following Jesus. It's costly to say yes to Jesus. If you've never said yes to Him, all cards on the table this morning. He's going to have something to say about every area of your life. Not just some things, He's got something to say about everything. And He's going to call you into a life of sacrifice and surrender and denial to self. He's going to invite you into a way of being that I believe no one else can invite you into. But make no mistake, it is going to cost you to follow Jesus. But here, here's the premise for the talk this morning. I believe it's costlier still not to. It costs a lot to follow Jesus. It will cost you significantly more not to. You with me? So here's the question I want us to sit with this morning during the message. Every single one of us is becoming someone. Who are you becoming? How's the becoming project going? And who's ultimately sitting in charge of that project? We're going to look at that under the banner of the cost of non-discipleship. Dallas Willard puts it this way. He said, put this quote in your notes, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from Him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens in every corner of human existence. You see, in the New Testament, the, dis, the word disciple is used 269 times. The word Christian is used three. Three times Christian, 269 disciple. I think he might be making a point. Learner, apprentice. Basically, the invitation to follow Jesus is you're invited into a way of being in this world. You come into His master class on the school of living, and you say with an open heart and open hand, Jesus, teach me how to live. 
That's why in Acts chapter 9, they called it followers of the way. You weren't invited just to be a Christian. You were invited to be following a way of being in the world, a way of life that touches every aspect of our lives. And Willard's quote, could you imagine how differently the world would look today if the 2.3 billion people, which is the current data, 2.3 billion people who claim they are Christian on the globe, if they actually became disciples, could you imagine how different it would be? Could you imagine the degree of darkness and injustice and evil that would be pushed back and stamped out? Could you imagine how different the institutions of this world would be led and would be doing if they were 2.3 billion disciples deployed? Be staggering. I know Jesus can imagine it. Just ask Caesar and the Roman Empire. You know, I've got quite a few uh, friends who are Catholics. I love my Catholic friends. They teach me a lot. I hang out at monasteries a lot. I hang out with priests and uh, have great conversations, and I learn a ton from them. One of the things my Catholic friends have taught me is they have a phrase when they're referencing other Catholic friends in their life. They'll say, oh, so-and-so is a practicing Catholic. Isn't that interesting? So I ask a little about, I say, what do you, how do you differentiate practicing Catholic to Catholic? And they say, well, you know, there's some, the term Catholic they were teaching me, say, it's kind of like a cultural identifier. You know, if you're Italian, you know, if you're from Boston or Jersey, is that helpful or distracting? It's probably distracting. <laughs> how am I doing, Mr. Simone over there, Chris Simone from the Northeast? You know, if you're Italian or from Boston or Jersey, you're Catholic. It's a cultural identifier. It really only impacts what you do on Christmas Eve and Easter. It doesn't really impact anything else. But then there are some who they would say are practicing Catholics. They're actually putting into practice in their everyday life the teachings of Jesus. And what I would argue today is that's Jesus' only vision for life of following Him. I've started to think we need to adopt in the Protestant circles a similar term. I think we need to differentiate in Protestant circles. Like all the surveys they send out, you know, all the Pew Research Studies and Barna Research Groups, it's not just Christian. I think we need a new term, practicing Christian. Who are the practicing Christian? Jesus, the New Testament term for that is disciple. A practicing Christian is putting into their everyday life the ways of Jesus of Nazareth. We're learning to live as he taught and modeled. That's what a disciple is. That's what a practicing Christian is. I would argue it's the only vision he ever gave for life in the kingdom of God. It's a practicing the way kind of life, which is what leads us to our teaching text for today, Luke 14. If you have an NIV Bible, you see the header on Luke 14? What does it say? The cost of being a disciple. Do you see that in your NIV? The cost of being a disciple. And then he says, I want you to think about this with two illustrations. He says, think about a general contractor about to put in a bid on a big project. And he says in verse 28, suppose of you wants to build a tower. 
wouldn't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? So it says, think general contractor about to submit a bid. And then secondly, think military colonel about to go into battle. Verse 31, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? So Jesus said, hey, count the cost before you say yes to becoming a follower, a practicing Christian. Jesus said, count the cost. Think about a general contractor on a big project and a military colonel about to go into battle. Here's his point. His point being what? Verse 33. In the same way, do you see that? Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So here's Jesus inviting us to do a little cost-benefit analysis. Put together a spreadsheet, Jesus says, on one column of the spreadsheet. Say, yeah, I'm going to say yes to Jesus, to living and walking in His ways. Fill up that column. Run the tape out on it. Where does that lead? What are the benefits in that? What are the costs in that? Fill up the column. Saying yes to Jesus. Next column on the spreadsheet saying yes to building your life your way however you want. Run the tape out on that. Put the cost and the benefits on that column. And step back from it and just say, Jesus, it's costly. It's costly to follow Jesus. It's costly to develop a thriving spiritual life the way He taught and modeled. It costs a lot to follow Him. But church, it costs you a lot more not to. A lot more. And to kind of drive this point home a little further, I just thought we'd take a little tour of the New Testament for a few minutes, and let's look at the examples in the New Testament of the cost of non-discipleship. How about Judas? I put these in your notes. Judas, Matthew 26, verse 14, one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So it's Judas, the one who betrays Jesus, going to sell him out. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And those of you familiar with the storyline, you know that this act of betrayal led to a pile of guilt and shame and regret, and eventually Judas took his own life. He hung himself one of the four suicides recorded in the Bible. The cost of non-discipleship. How about Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12? This is the grandson of Herod the Great. So he's got a long legacy in his family, and he's appointed by Rome to provide Roman leadership over a primarily Jewish territory called Judea, Herod Agrippa. And here's what it says in Acts 12. On an appointed day, Herod's wearing his royal robes, which would be common, sitting on his throne, common, delivers a public address to the people. Very common day for him. The people shout. Here's the response of the crowd. This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. That's a little harsh, I know. Herod's building life on the kingdom of Herod, I think in his column of the cost, uh, I don't think he saw that. I don't think he added that in his column. A little bit farther in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul's writing to his young understudy, Timothy, he calls out some people by name. 
2 Timothy chapter, chapter 2, verse 16, he calls out Hymenaeus and Philetus. He says, avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread, hear this, like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. I want you to look at those verses for a second. So here, here's Paul telling Timothy, hey, there's some, they're not, walk, they're not practicing Christians. And look at what it's costing them. Their legacy is going to be gangrene, wandering from the truth, destroying the faith of some. There's their legacy. Church, it's costly to follow Jesus. It costs you significantly more not to. And then Paul goes on a couple chapters later. He calls out Demas, chapter 4, verse 10. It says, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. And then that chapter, he calls out Alexander the metal worker, verse 14, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him. I don't think you wanted your name showing up in Paul's letters very often. He's just calling them out. At the end of the book of Romans, did you know there's a section in the Romans? I entitled this the self-centered crowd. Romans 16, 17, and 18, Paul tells the church at Rome, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving, hear this, our Lord Christ, but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the minds of naive people. Good thing we're not struggling with that in our current cultural moment these days, huh? Serving our own appetites, smooth talk, flattery, deceiving the mind, I mean. Non-discipleship to Jesus is costly. There's a lot at stake here, church. There's no neutral ground. Do you see this? So here's the premise. The question for the day is, Who are you becoming? Who am I becoming? Who are we becoming as people? Because every single one of us is undergoing a spiritual formation process. That's not a Christian thing. That's a human thing. Everybody is becoming someone. You're all being formed and shaped. Primarily three things contribute to this becoming project. The stories you believe about yourself and the world around you. There are the stories that you kind of repeat. They're like your mental maps that you map out reality. The stories you believe, the habits that you practice, your routines, and then the people you surround yourself with. Stories, habits, and people. Those three things contribute collectively to this formation work that every single human is going through. The question isn't whether you're being spiritually formed. The question is simply what kind. Judas was spiritually formed. Herod was spiritually formed. Philetus and Hymaeus were spiritually formed. That guy who walked up to us on 57th Street with a pornographic question, spiritually formed. And C.S. Lewis put it this way, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God or counter-claimed by Satan. Church, are you following me here today? It's costly to follow Jesus. Count the costs. But it's costlier still not to. There's a lot at stake here.
And I think as a nation, there's a sobering times that we're living. You see, as a nation, we're exalting the sovereignty of self while marginalizing the fear of God. So exalting the sovereignty of self and marginalizing the fear of God. We're determined to do what's right in our own eyes and complete disregard for what's right in God's eyes. And do you know what the net result of that is, church? We're becoming a certain kind of nation. There are consequences to these things. A country is undergoing formation. The question is, what direction and what kind? There are staggering consequences when you exalt self and marginalize God. And I think that's part of what we're reaping right now culturally. Cultural commentator Mark Sayers says that we're about to switch, we're about to move from the era of anxiety that marked the last eight or so years, and he thinks we're moving to an era of anger, from anxiety to anger, and he thinks 2024 is the pivot. Anxiety to anger. Can you feel it? From politics to law enforcement to business to media to youth sports to violent crimes. Can you feel, church, the atmosphere of anger that's just charged in the cultural air? It's the atmosphere of a nation undergoing formation. This is what happens when you sow godless, godlessness and hedonism and secularism and digital distraction, when you sow that into the moral fabric of a country, you reap what you sow and you store what you reap. And that's what we're living, church. This is the times in which we live. The U.S. Surgeon General released a report. Dr. Murthy declared that the surge in American loneliness has hit a place that he determined is a public health crisis. So this past May, the Surgeon General of the United States issued a public advisory noting the following, quote, loneliness can wreck both our bodies and our minds. It more than doubles adults and children's risk of depression, driving up the risk of a person's premature death by 60%, and significantly increase the likelihood of heart disease, stroke, and dementia. Surgeon General, just looking at the data, how are we doing with the human experience as a country? How are we doing as a nation? We're becoming, do you see this? We're becoming someone. We're becoming. We're on the journey. Would we put it in the category of flourishing and life-giving? See, it's costly to follow Jesus. It's costlier still not to. Which is why some researchers, they've actually coined a phrase you probably have seen some of the articles where they're calling us, we've, we've entered an era as a country in what they're calling a friendship recession. All the talk of recession, a friendship recession because of the degree of loneliness and the staggering implications. So it turns out God's word to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, it had a lot packed into it. You remember what he said to Adam? It's not good for man to be alone. Look at this quote I put in your notes. John Mark Comer summarized it this way. <clears throat> Life is hard, with or without God. But what's really hard, nearly unbearable for some, is facing the pain and suffering of life apart from God. So is trying to save yourself rather than be saved. Living in a godless, shepherdless, meaningless universe 
That's really, really hard. Stay with me here. Ironically, in our attempts to avoid the difficult path of discipleship, we make our life harder, not easier. In our pursuit of happiness over obedience, we make our life less happy. In our resistance to Jesus' yoke, we end up shouldering the crushing burden of our own unsatisfied desires. There's a lot there. That's a paragraph to camp on for the week, I think. How are you doing with the Becoming Project? So here's where we're going with the Lenten season. We're about to step into Lent in just uh, 10 days or so. And what we're going to do between now and Easter is we're going to count the cost. We're going to peel back the layers on what it means to be a practicing Christian, a disciple of Jesus. We're going to take a look at the Becoming Project and ask the question, how's it going? And maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I I, I don't like the condition and direction of my life. Do you know that the early church fathers put the Lenten season on the calendar for that very purpose? To examine the condition and direction of your life and make changes accordingly. They said Easter was so significant we can't rush into it. We need six weeks to step back and soberly examine what's going on in here. Who are you becoming Are you flourishing in the way God intended your life to flourish? And if not, the Lent season is a time to make some changes. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be camping out with this diagram that I put in your notes. I entitled this diagram, Formation in the Way of Jesus. I hope by now that I've established for you, everyone's undergoing formation. That's not the question. The question is simply what kind. So we're going to go formation in the way of Jesus. It's going to involve three primary things at the points. Truth, immersion in the biblical narrative. Like we're going to have to immerse ourselves in mental maps to reality by God's word. That's what's going to shape. So there's this truth aspect that we've got to get our minds renewed, coupled with focal practices. Some of you have maybe been raised with terms Uh, sacred rhythms, spiritual disciplines, holy habits. Basically, it's the life that Jesus taught and modeled. If you want to live the life Jesus lived, you're going to have to adopt the lifestyle that Jesus adopted. That's the basic premise with focal practices. And then community. We're going to learn discipleship in the way of Jesus is an us, we, and together thing. It was never intended to be done alone. That you surround yourself with people going the direction you want to go. And then at the bottom of the diagram, you say it's suffering over the course of, right, decades worth of a life. It's kind of like what the Witzig family is enduring, saying goodbye to a patriarch in the family. And doing it with Jesus means there's someone that comes alongside you who the Bible calls a man of sorrows who's acquainted with grief. Isn't that wonderful to have in our deepest valleys and darkest days that you're not alone there and there's a Savior there, a man of sorrows there? who will sit with you, who will help you, who will strengthen you, who will give peace to you. And then you see at the core of the diagram, it says Holy Spirit. So listen, this entire formation project that Jesus invites us into, this isn't like self-care plus. That's not what Jesus offers. This isn't like just come in and kind of get some new vision about how to take care of, take care of your anxiety and get more balance in your life and all. 
This whole thing is a supernatural work. The presence and power of God must fall on a human heart to transform it from the inside out. Truth practices community with the presence and power of God at the center of this thing. Jesus says, that's a way of being I'm inviting you into. It's called being a disciple. If I had to draw one diagram for you to get a picture of what it means to enter in to the way of Jesus, this is my best shot at it right here. And that's what we're going to be doing during the Lenten season. So church, it's costly. We've got to count the costs to be a disciple. But I think it's significantly costlier still not to. So worship team, why don't you come on back up? One final story, <clears throat> and then I'm done. You remember a couple weeks ago I shared how we had lost our friend and neighbor, Tim Doyle. <clears throat> Tim struggled with muscular dystrophy for most of his life. For, I think I wrote down, I added it up because we were at his funeral, 45 of his 61 years. Tim lived the last 30 years of his life in a wheelchair. When Kendra and I went to the memorial service at College Park, Here's what I was struck by, church. I was struck by the almost two-hour gathering that we had where the dominant discussion was the kind of person Tim had become. Here's, here are the words that stood out about the kind of person Tim became. A man of joy, selflessness, faith, endurance, wisdom, and prayer. What explains that kind of a life? When, simultaneously, the people who shared their various stories, one friend, one fraternity brother stood up and talked about how Tim was the kind of man who the way he approached life was all grit and no quit. That's what he remembered of Tim Doyle, all grit, no quit. And one of his coworkers stood up and said, he learned that Tim had to get up at 4.30 in the morning with his wife Becky's help to make an 8.30 meeting. His life was staggeringly difficult. MDA for 30 plus years just racking his body. And yet one friend stood up and said he had never met a man who in his presence Speaking of Tim, he walked away so encouraged and with a person who genuinely wanted to pray for him. And then the final person who stood up at the memorial service would be called maybe his closest friend. And he shared and told the story about a decision that Tim Doyle made when he was 30. He's 30 years old. At this point, he'd been living with muscular dystrophy for about 15 years. It was just about the time he was transitioning to a wheelchair. And this friend said that he was an eyewitness to Tim Doyle's decision to surrender his life to Christ and to become a disciple of Jesus. All grit, no quit. How does a man who who lived with the circumstantial realities that Tim lived with, how do you end up 
full of joy, selflessness, faith, endurance, wisdom, and prayer. How do you exit at age 61, 31 years in a wheelchair, living with such physical pain and suffering that the dominant ethos of his life was an others-oriented joyfulness? See, Tim had become someone. And I think the only explanation for Tim Doyle's life is he met a man called Jesus of Nazareth who's all grit and no quit. There's no one who models all grit, no quit like Jesus. Tim knew that. Tim linked his life up with him and said, you know what? No matter how deep this valley, no matter how dark this day, I've got a companion with me. And he knew God's word to a degree that, I mean, it just flowed out of him. The discipline in which he lived with and practiced prayer with and the people in the community had in his life and his reliance on the Holy Spirit and his suffering through the years, the collective, what explains this life and this man? Only Jesus. And so I ask you, who are you becoming? How's the becoming project going? Do you like the condition and direction? Does it need some course correction and adjustments? And this is a morning to count the cost. Because Jesus is going to ask us to lay a lot of things down. He's going to ask us to take up a cross daily. It's going to cost a lot. The sobering reality of this, it costs even more not to. Let's pray. And so, Lord, as, as we wrap up this morning, <clears throat> I'm just thinking maybe there's someone here, someone listening online, and maybe this morning there's a resonance in the heart, and you just never said yes personally to Jesus' invitation, come follow me. You can do that right now. The quietness of your own heart, you say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Here's my life. I confess my sin. I believe you died on a cross and rose from the dead. Here's my whole life. It is yours. I give myself to you. Teach me your ways. Fill me with your spirit. I want to be your disciple. Teach me how to be a practicing Christian. thank you for the all quit or the all grit no quit that you displayed you never give up on us thank you for consistently pursuing us thank you for laying your life down to making a way a way of being in this world no one offers the life you offer we love you in Jesus name